Happy Fourth of July, Dave. Yeah, Happy Fourth of July to you too. Oh, what did you uh, What did you get into this holiday? Um, my daughter and I did uh, a little bit of Python on our uh, Raspberry Pi. Atta boy, that's great. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, what else are you gonna do on, on Independence <laughs> Day? Like, really? <laughs> right, right. Um, let's. Well, listen. I, I, enough of this banter. We we actually got a whole show to get through, right? Um, yes. We gotta we gotta talk about the prism. Uh, the slash dot had some gunner bait for me. Uh, the OpenStack security guide, which I know we're both excited about. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we're gonna talk about the indie web, mm-hmm. uh, which we've talked around in past episodes, but I think now we can talk specifically about this idea of the indie web. Um, Sierra note about a petabyte of tax data, which sounds terrifying. And uh, and actually, the highlight for me is we're going to interview with the creator of our beloved comma feed. Yes, I'm so excited. Yeah, that's going to be great. Um, so, Dave, how how are you surviving? Uh, this is the first episode we've done since uh, the Google Reader apocalypse. Yes, yeah. So you could imagine me in this dystopian world of uh, like a <laughs> zombie apocalypse thing, where it's like I. Uh, um, like I'm filthy and I have these uh, bandoliers of ammunition on me and, and you know, it's shotguns and um, a lot of duct tape, a lot of, mm-hmm. a lot of plastic uh, right. tarps and stuff, you yeah. know, and I'm filling the bathtub up with Google reader before it shuts down <laughs> and, you know, and, and yeah. So, um, but no, I'm, I'm surviving. It's just one day at a time, you know, but, uh, but I think the, uh, the big thing for me is, is uh, going from, Google Reader to uh, Comma Feed uh, was pretty seamless, and and it also gave me the opportunity, you know, uh, with with props to Google of being able to you know do uh, Google Takeout to take my stuff out and easily insert it into other uh, Google Reader alternatives, um, mm-hmm. and that was like silly trivial to do, uh, so it, it it worked out pretty well. But uh, how about you? Uh, it was good. Um, so we were we were getting the house ready for. Uh, we had some people over for uh, for July Fourth, and uh, my wife found uh, a little present in our garden. A oh, little nice! House, little housewarming gift from the neighborhood. Uh, and I'll we'll, we'll put a photo of that up in the show notes. Uh, yeah, just that, that could be the picture of the week. It should be the picture of the week. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. All right. Well, so actually, so where do people go if they want to go see a photo of that? Yeah, they want to go to uh, dgshow.org. So it's D's and Dave, G's and Gunner, show.org. Yep. And uh, the cutting room floor, uh, thanks to Comma Feed, is uh, just robust this week. Right? <laughs> so so what, what do we have in, in store for people that, that go to see our cutting room floor? I th- Well, I think you found, finally found a, a Raspberry Pi project for me because uh, I see here a bark-activated dog door run by yep. a raspberry pi which sounds hilarious um yep. and also actually a, a number of links about the perils of using uh text messages for two-factor authentication uh which, yep. w- which really got me thinking uh so it's so pretty good like you say it's a it's a robust collection this week no doubt yeah um all right jumping in the news what do you say yeah let's go go for okay. it okay here we go le prism Yes. Uh, yes. It's French. Sounds French. What what is Le Prism? Well, it's uh it's exactly like our own Prism program. It's just a little more sophisticated uh and tends to look down on the other prisms. <laughs> nice. Nice. So okay, so what is it a little more specific? What 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 is that? Yeah, so it turns out that uh, uh France also has a uh, metadata collection program very much like the the uh the NSA program. Uh and it's it is also collecting information on French citizens. Um, I 
you know, I read this and it was produced as a kind of a revelation. Um, I don't know about you, David. Maybe I'm just cynical. Maybe I've been, you know, working with the government for too long. But uh, it, oh, I, am, I completely understand the objection to a, an, a, a kind of a signals intelligence organization capturing information from its own citizens, right? There's, mm -hmm. for a good reason, there's, you know, a clear legal divide between what is domestic surveillance and what is foreign surveillance. Um, and while I definitely have, I, and I hold strong civil liberties objections to them doing this, I also don't know what the answer to the problem is because the internet has basically broken that divide. Like the internet makes it pretty near impossible to, to effectively divide traffic between what is domestic and what is, and what is foreign. Um, have you read any, any ideas on how to fix that problem, Dave? Do you know? I, yeah, I don't, I don't, yeah. but I also, you know, it's, it's like everybody was like bashing the NSA and it's like, you know, it's like, I, I don't think the NSA were the only, I'm not, are, are you surprised that France or any other government is doing this? No. In fact, I tweeted about this. I was like, I, I, a lot of the objection seems to be around the fact that they do it at all. And I'm kind of, which is very confusing to me. I'm like, what, what do you guys think spy agencies do all day? Right. They're not, you know, yeah. they're not walking around in trench coats, like, you know, for, for 50, 60 years, they've been doing signals intelligence. Um, you know, it's gotten a lot more complicated in the last 20 years, but it's, uh, you know, this is by no means a surprise. Um, I think we'll find that, you know, we know the UK does the same thing. Germany does the same thing. China, Russia, bah, 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 bah. if you can afford to do it, uh, you know, a, a full-grown country is going to do signals intelligence. Um, and if they're doing signals intelligence, they are going to run into these civil liberties problems just based on the way that the telecommunications infrastructure is built. Um, that's, again, not to, like, dismiss the the question of civil liberties and the kind of chilling effect this has on citizens. But um, at the same time, it's, uh, yeah, it's not unique to the NSA. And uh, certainly nobody has actually figured out how to, uh, how to how to solve the problem yet, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, it's a bummer. Well, you saw a Wired article about uh, big data in prison. <laughs> yeah, so this, and, I, and we've talked about this before, where uh, you know this this idea of kind of domestic surveillance creeps people out completely, um, but yet are perfectly fine to go on Facebook and go talk about it. Um, <laughs> yes, you know, like, there's a certain irony there. Um, there is an important distinction um, in that Facebook doesn't have a monopoly on violence in the way that the government does, but. Um, it was not surprising me to learn, though, that uh, the same tools that Facebook is using to figure out what to sell you uh, are, are the tools that the intelligence agencies are using to collect data, right? Uh, they have yep. exactly the same problem, and they're, in fact, as we know now, using exactly the same sources. Uh, and so it was this wired article that basically recontextualized the news about Accumulo, right, uh, mm -hmm. which is based on the... Uh, which is the Apache project based on HBase, uh, which can trace this lineage back to uh, back to the original Google big data white papers, right? Um, so you got Google and Yahoo and Facebook sharing technology in a bunch of meaningful ways with these uh, with these programs like uh, like the NSA collection programs and you know and this French program. Uh, I just think it's interesting to see the overlap in who's using these tools um, is is pretty telling. Uh, yep. It's uh, I think it's. I think it's instructive. How about that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I also don't think that, you know, it's a kind of thing, oh, I'm going to use this encryption software so the NSA doesn't spy on me. It's like, you should probably use that no matter what. You know, it's yeah. it's no matter whether it's the NSA or Facebook or Time Warner Cable or, you know, another government agency. It's, it, you know, it's, you know, people should use um, open source 
secure alternatives to uh, particular things. And that's the EFF. They came up with a, uh, a list of, of nice alternatives, and, and we'll put that in the show notes. So if people wanted to use, um, instead of a proprietary messaging system where you don't know if there's a backdoor in it, you, there are open source ones that you could actually uh, look at the code for. Right, and, and cleverly, uh, they called it uh, Prism Break. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> waka waka. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, and then, Dave, you found this, or maybe yeah. I found it, this Slashdot article, which is just this ridiculous yellow troll. Um, I can't even talk about it. You should talk about it. It just yep. it infuriates me. Yeah. So it's, it, and I'm sure this is like one of these, like, hey, this is salacious and it'll get web imprints and sell ads. But it's basically about, oh, well, is well, with, with all the bad stuff that NSA is doing, are they putting back doors and open source and open standards? And what are the odds of them doing this? And so right now, Dan Walsh is just sitting there shaking his head, right? <laughs> That's <laughs> right. You know, as far as like, oh, all the back doors and SE Linux that NSA slipped in there. And it's like, I know. I mean, yeah. so what's your take? So, so you're probably all you're probably speechless. Yeah, I was it just the so the when people bring this up, the only proper answer is, what kind of assurances do you have that they don't have backdoors in proprietary software? Right. Like, why are you picking on open source software? Um, and you know, in open source software, you at least have the opportunity to know if somebody's put a backdoor in your software. In proprietary software, you do not have that opportunity. You, there's no chance. You simply have to gamble, and your your risk is, or the risk that you're assuming, is dictated entirely by how much you trust the organization who gave you that software, right? Yep. Um, so well, also, you know, the the if if I were the NSA and I wanted to put a backdoor in some open source code, would I submit it from my NSA.gov email address? <laughs> right. That's what they want you to think, Dave. It's a yeah. it's a it's a double cross on a double cross. Yeah. That's like a, all right. But I mean, seriously, you know, the next thing you can imagine is that, that that you'll see the NSA just starting to get involved with like cloud security standards next, right? Oh yeah, funny you mention that because actually our uh, good friend Sean Wells, you know, it was us forty dollars, uh, is uh, <laughs> just finished working on the OpenStack security guide. Yeah, uh, with help from the NSA. With help from the NSA. So the, in the same way that they produced uh, the, uh, in the same way that the government is helping to create lockdown or hardening guidance for a bunch of commercially available products, right? They've done it for Windows. Uh, they've been doing it for RHEL for years. Uh, they did it for Mac OS X. Uh, they, uh, they got together with a bunch of the OpenStack community, including Red Hat, of course, and developed a security guide. Um, mm -hmm. So we got a link to that in the show notes. But that's really exciting. And what's, what I like about it is that OpenStack is still a very young project, right? It's still moving very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. But people are definitely conscious of the security consequences of OpenStack. I mean, it represents a pretty good-sized target, right? Uh, and so having them think about security and having a kind of coordinated effort to create consensus security guidance up front kind of this early in the life of the project, I think is, a, is awesome. Yeah, instead of having it, oh, well, we'll get it stabilized for a couple of years and then we'll think, think of security as an afterthought. Um, yeah. We're here yeah. building it in. That's a good thing. Yep, yep. Yeah. Bake, it, bake it right in. Um, speaking, of, uh, speaking of collaborative efforts, um, you remember we, we talked about the Open Daylight Project, I think, mm -hmm. a few episodes ago. Um, so this is the basically the software-defined networking project, right? Um, well, I ran across, uh, if you guys aren't using Scout, uh, which is, a, again, open-source piece of software run by the Sunlight Labs, uh, Scout is this little robot, and the little robot goes out and does regular searches for you through 
the Federal Register, uh, government regulations, um, proceedings uh, from the legislature, and it will email you whenever one of your keywords pops up. Uh, right. Dave, can you guess what I put in as a keyword? Open source. Uh, that's exactly what I did. And so I was rewarded just a few days ago with news that the participants in the Open Daylight Project, the Software Defined Networking Project, had to actually file notice with the DOJ uh, announcing, uh, what is that? Uh, well, the title of the thing is uh, Justice Department Notice Pursuant to the National Cooperative Research and Development Act, Cooperative Research and Production Act of 1993. Um, and as far as I could tell, I'm not familiar with any of this, but as far as I could tell, what they what they were doing is there were so many companies involved in this who are ostensibly competitors that they had mm -hmm. to actually tell DOJ that they were doing it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. I'd never seen that before. Um, and I, I presume I'm reading that right. Uh, but I think it's, if, if I'm correct, it seems like a, uh, this, uh, <laughs> an amazing, uh, attestation to how, uh, how complicated or how unique open source is, uh, in the context of, uh, kind of antitrust rules, right? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Kind of, you know, you get a bunch of these competitors working together, like on projects like AMQP, on projects like Open Daylight. Um, you know, on the, you know, back a hundred years ago, if these were all railroads, this would look like collusion, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but it's in fact good for the consumer uh, because these guys aren't collaborating on stuff that is not differentiating, right? Is is plumbing for them? Is stuff that should be commodities for them? Uh, and so they're actually reducing their production costs uh, mm -hmm. and therefore being able to offer a, uh, a lower priced, higher quality product to the customer. Kind of nice. Mm. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Uh, let's see. Speaking of uh, collusion and antitrust, we got uh, the automakers here. Now, what, yeah. what did you find? Yeah. So this again was another slash dot story I saw where about um, is somebody was talking about, well, you know, the, the automaker should stop, you know, uh, the infotainment arms race where at first blush i thought that oh that makes sense i don't want to have distractions while i'm driving or have other people being distracted while, while they're driving but it was actually more of um well instead of having a proprietary thing that you put in your dashboard and in a car that you're going to keep for 10 years and knowing how that that would be several moore's law iterations you're better off just having something that you could have a standard plug that you could plug in your tablet say and let your tablet be your um uh your, your your infotainment dashboard so it's just basically let let your tablet or whatever electronic device hook into your sound system using bluetooth or or uh or uh miracast or something like that mm -hmm. um but but let it be the thing that you could you could automatically you know or every couple of years replace without having to replace your car because really i i don't know if people or if the car manufacturers had that in mind that, you know, that designed obsolescence of, oh, well, I, you know, like I, to me, I will never buy a car that has navigation uh, built into it because it's like, you know, by the time you own the thing for a couple of years, it's going to be so obsolete and it would just kill me. It would drive mm -hmm. me nuts. Mm -hmm. um, so I just want like a radio with Bluetooth and I could hook my uh, phone into the Bluetooth and, and do all the navigation, play my songs and all that stuff. And I, you know, that's the way I like to do it. Yeah, yeah. No that, that, no, that makes a lot of sense to me. As, well, do you think that they are, that's an interesting question, because do you think that they're issuing these standards, or if they're, like, are they trying to differentiate themselves based on their infotainment devices? Um, 
are they deliberately making them silos? Are they deliberately trying to make them different than everybody else's so that, you know, if I'm bought into Ford, I'm not going <laughs> to buy another Ford because I've already, you know, invested whatever in the Ford infotainment system. Uh, it seems like a weak kind of lock-in for, mm-hmm. or, or differentiation for them to get. Uh, my guess is, and I could be wrong about this. I don't know anything about the market, but it would seem like Ford or Chrysler or whoever are probably not building these in-house as much. Uh, chances are pretty good that they're actually contracting out to other companies for this. Mm-hmm. And they're probably not thinking about standardization. They're probably just thinking about delivering the capability to the car, right? And giving mm-hmm. it to the customer. And so, um, you know, they're, they're actually using a bunch of subcontractors, a bunch of different vendors to get, to put the capability in, which means that they're not actually thinking about standardization, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's a pretty good sign of like a young industry, right? Uh, when you've, when things haven't really commoditized or standardized, you still have a bunch of kind of upstarts, again, differentiating against each other. Uh, I wonder what it would be to have, uh, actually, you know, what's ironic is this is, it's actually similar to how the, uh, the UAV or the drone industry has caught up, right? Um, mm-hmm. A bunch of kind of prepackaged stuff from different vendors mm-hmm. um, that was all kind of difficult to integrate. None of it really talked to each other. Uh, and now we're starting to see these standards come out. Now we're starting to see these open source projects come out uh, that actually link uh, uh, these the guts of the UAVs together, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if we'll, wonder if we'll see something similar on the uh, on the automaker side. That would be interesting. Yeah, well, I also I, I think it's the same problem with uh, the TV manufacturers too. Like mm-hmm. they're, I think they're trying to prevent themselves from being commoditized. But and mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to buy a new TV every time there's a new feature or you know to make my TV smarter. Yeah. I'll just buy a new Roku. Yeah, and because you know, <laughs> I yeah. because my TV is something I'm going to spend you know well over a thousand dollars on and that thing's going to last me until it dies and you know usually it's like i you know i have that crt tv that still didn't die yet it's like 25 or more years old and um that i still don't use but um but for me it's like having that modularity of that oh there's a new roku out and it's like i can buy that for a hundred bucks and i can sell my old one for 75 bucks and you know it's like cool I, i get that the technology refresh and it's all you know standardized because it's using HDMI and connecting into my Wi-Fi and you know mm-hmm. that's I love my Roku it's great yeah well it's a, you know it's funny <laughs> it's like uh, it's the old you know back when people were buying the hi fi's you know the mm-hmm. hi fi but you know, there was there's this ongoing argument against you know getting like an integrated system versus buying the individual components oh right yeah um, this is exactly what we're talking about right um, is if you buy the integrated system um, you are placing one bet on that one maker uh, kind of maybe keeping up to date or like that being all that you need. Um, whereas if, you know, a new widget comes out or something like a Roku comes up, uh, it may or may not work with this fully integrated system. But if you've instead bought a bunch of individual components, each of which can kind of upgrade at their own pace, um, mm-hmm. you, stand a, you stand a much better chance of, of not wasting your money, right? Yep. Yeah. Cool. That's a great example. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, good. All right. So we got to solve that. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, LibreOffice. There's LibreOffice yes. news. Yes. Yeah. So, um, uh, um, so AMD, uh, is in the news and because they are, uh, they've added GPU acceleration to, uh, LibreOffice, uh, the spreadsheet application. Okay. So why, 
I don't know, maybe I'm just not making complicated enough charts, but why do I need a GPU on spreadsheets? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's the first thing I thought, too, um, where it's, but, but I guess, you know, this goes back to, you know, in the past, people, you know, you, you had to use, like, very complicated math software to do, like, crazy math, but um, nowadays, I know a lot of people that are doing, like, really complicated, involved stuff using mm-hmm. um, just Excel or a spreadsheet. And mm-hmm. so, and a lot of times that stuff is like done, it's interpreted and it's not very well optimized. So I can imagine doing a lot of the math inside of a spreadsheet would be, um, uh, using a GPU would actually, uh, accelerate things. Yeah. And actually, and you know what, I take it back. I actually love this idea and, and here's why, um, spreadsheets more than any other office tool, uh, kind of democratized, um, the, the use of uh, kind of st- doing complicated analysis, right? Um, mm-hmm. Doing doing sophisticated analysis, right? So instead of having to walk in with your data hat in hand to some kind of data priest who could take the data in, throw it into a mainframe, and then spit out your analysis for you, um, spreadsheets actually let you do all that on your desktop. Um, and so there's... Uh, because you have so many people being able to experiment with their own data using spreadsheets... Uh, I see them as like a real tool for innovation, um, as, yeah. cor- as corny as that sounds. And actually, the the idea that uh, being able to put more and more sophisticated analysis onto the desktop, I think, makes a ton of sense. And linking GPUs to the desktop uh, just means that people are going to be able to do many more computations that much faster. Uh, man, I think that's a great idea. That's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Right on. Um Let's see. Speaking of innovation, uh, oh, you you found something in the reg that that. So let me get. I got a R two D two shopkeeper. What is this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's it looked like uh, some sort of uh, Intel was doing some sort of event where uh, you know the the whole thing with robotics taking off. Like you know how like you go to Home Depot and it's like you can't find a particular screwdriver, so you push a button. And and then it says, oh, customer assistance needed in hardware or whatever. And then mm-hmm. uh, all of a sudden, some uh, you know Home Depot person shows up in their apron and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can imagine in the future, instead of it being a human being, it's it's a robot that comes up and says, "How can I help you?" And then you could tell it, "Hey, I'm looking for hammers or screwdrivers or whatever." And then it'll it'll guide you to where they are and and help you out that way. Oh, neat. Um, and it's like a it's a like an actual operational robot, right? It's not mm-hmm. just a skeuomorphic robot. <laughs> right. Not, to, not right. just like a fake robot, right? Yeah. Cool. No, it looks like a stick on a ball um, that it just, you know, it like sort of like a Segway sort of doesn't tip over sort of thing. Oh, and, creepy. Uh, Super yeah. creepy. Yeah. And it just it just goes around and... Is it like a Terry Gilliam film where it's like a television camera on top with like the dis- someone's distorted face in it? <laughs> yeah, CRT. No. <laughs> There's a that actually reminds me of a, one of our favorite movie theaters out here um, has these two uh, kind of human height robots uh, done up like hokey kind of child's toy looking robots um, and they and those are the uh, the ticket machines so in the robot's tummy he's got uh, an LCD that you use to kind of choose and buy your tickets and then his left arm uh, is sticking is kind of sticking out pointing towards you and at the end of the left arm is the credit card receptacle. Wow. Um, yeah, it's really cool. We, we'll include a photo of that in the show notes. Um, nice work, Alamo Draft House. Yeah. Cool. Uh, let's see. 
So what, what do you think of that? Do you think that, that this is a bad thing for society and store clerks and wait staff and cooks are going to go by the way of buggy whip manufacturers? Like, for instance, you go to the, the, you know, to the movie theater or whatever and you order a sandwich and then mm-hmm. a robot comes up to take your order and then it comes back with a, a tray on its head with, with your food on it and you take <laughs> it and, you know, is that, is that a good thing? society or bad or we is this an evolution does that free people up to do other things yeah well i mean yeah so that i think that so take a take a clothing store right um for you look at how clothing stores work today um people a lot of people are a lot more comfortable ordering their stuff online and so to compensate for that um and in fact to justify the real estate that they have uh, a retail clothing store will tr- try to make sure that the humans that are there will actually add value in a meaningful way. Um, mm-hmm. And so doing things like having them, uh, having them hooked up to the, to the supply or the, to the shop in the back. Right. So, mm-hmm. Oh, you need a medium. Oh, okay. Hold on. Let me get on the walkie talkie and, and see if there's a medium. Um, having them, the clerks have more expertise in the products that they sell. Um, so instead of, you know, you like walk into a Sears and the person there is like, doesn't really know the inventory. Um, they're just Mm kind of there to take your credit card. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm actually pretty comfortable, um, automating those guys and, and, and replacing that kind of a clerk with a shell script. Um, I think, uh, a clerk though, who is, who has expertise, um, this is how Home Depot sells themselves, right? Um, uh, the clerk knows the inventory. Uh, they can make recommendations. Um, they yes. can help guide you through the process. That adds a ton of value that you're not going to get even through a robot, right? Yep. Um, and again, sorry. And then going back to the clothing stores, you see, especially on like high-end clothing stores, um, they'll even take inventory off the rack, right? The the clothing store will have, you know, the <laughs> you go to a high-end clothing store in New York, and there's like four pairs of jeans and two t-shirts in there, you know, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they all and they all cost five hundred bucks. Uh, but part of the experience is going in there and talking with someone who is an expert and can talk to you about how the jeans are made out of artisanal cotton by, you know, uh, the historically skilled, uh, Peruvian gene weavers or, or whatever, um, you know, like, and like, and so that's, a, and so that ends up being what you pay for almost, which is kind of a hilarious example, but it's a, it's a richer experience than mm-hmm. kind of walking dumbly through, you know, a pile of 500 pairs of jeans and trying to pick out the one that you want. Right. Yep. Um, so, and, and all, sorry, all of which is to say that I think automating what we can is fine. Um, and I think you're going to see stores respond to that kind of technology by making their humans a tool for differentiation. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah, and well, and I can imagine too, where people are—it's you know, benefits cost more, healthcare, and all that. The you know, you're going to probably start seeing more robots. The same way that you see, like at the grocery store checkout, where it's self-checkout. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be self-stocking shelves, or you know, robots stocking the shelves, or um, you know, uh, things like that. So, um, yeah, yep. it's all, this is just another step in the process, right? I mean, uh, the garbage truck came by my house today, and no human got out of the garbage truck, right? Uh, It used to be that there would be a crew of three or four guys hanging off the garbage truck, and now it's just basically one or two dudes in the cab, and a big robot arm comes out, picks up the thing, and throws it in the back, right? Um, This kind of automation happens everywhere, and um, 
I, you know, I don't know if it's entirely, I'm not a macroeconomist or anything, but it seems like, uh, it seems like it's an improvement, um, by mm-hmm. and large. Right. I don't know. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I guess we'll, we're also going to be eliminating jobs of, of people making uh, tech net, tech net CDs. Right. <laughs> nice, nice, nice transition. <laughs> yeah. So Microsoft shutting down TechNet, uh, yeah. which is their uh, subscription service. And I, Dave, I could have this wrong. It's been a while since I've uh, even touched this, but um, this is a, TechNet was the subscription service that Microsoft had that gave you access to all their bits. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. And then there's also um, uh, MSDN, you know, where, where you can get all their operating systems and things mm-hmm. like that. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, they've been doing TechNet for 15 years now. And I'm, I'm very much like you, where it's almost like, like I have this like AA coin of, of how long I haven't used Windows. <laughs> for it's, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess. <laughs> so, but, but ironic, right? Because uh, actually, as of Summit, uh, and even before that, it's like our own developer tools and services are actually ramping up, right? Yes. Um, yeah. So actually... for people that, that have that extra money in your pocket um, for that you were spending on TechNet subscriptions, we could gladly take that off your hands for um, the amount of money you spend on what uh, one TechNet subscription you can get, like two or three uh, Red Hat developer subscriptions. Yep, yep. And so the Red Hat developer subscription, obviously, it's almost funny to say that we have a developer subscription because it's all open source, right? Um, mm-hmm. But we actually provide access to the enterprise bits, uh, so you can uh, so you can play with you know the real McCoy. Um, there's actually support attached to them. Um, you have uh, the actual developer tool chain, um, so like newer versions of GCC stuff like that. Um, definitely worth. There's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff, and we'll include a link to the show notes. We'll include uh, to the uh, Red Hat developer tools and services. Yeah. yeah, good. Speaking of developers, speaking of developers. Oh, are we going to talk about uh, are we going to talk about Ruby or Raspberry Pi? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, just I guess some events that are that are coming up. Um, not necessarily Red Hat events. Kind of, um, but uh, Pi Ohio. So if you're in Ohio, like in the Columbus area, uh, at the end of July, there's going to be uh, Pi Ohio for uh, for Python. And there's actually a Young Coders uh, session going on at the same time where it's like, it's very limited. It's like 25 slots. Then the sign-up is on Monday at 7 a.m. Um, but whenever you sign up you and you get into this class, um, you know, kids from like 12 to 17 can sit in this class, learn how to do uh, uh, Python and Pi game on top of a Raspberry Pi. And once the uh, class is over, they get to take the Raspberry Pi home with them. Oh, really cool. That's great. Yeah, it's a free event. So, But it's like uh, space is limited. So, um, so yeah, that, that's going on. And then uh, August 1st uh, at the Akron Lug, if, if you're interested in Scratch on Raspberry Pi and wanted to teach your kids... Uh, how to code um there's this girl that has the same last name as me um <laughs> i i don't know i just saw this somewhere but uh, <laughs> no but no lauren is is uh, doing a presentation there so she's all excited to talk about what what she's been up to over the past uh year or so with with scratch and raspberry pi oh, very cool is that is there going to be any video of that uh, probably, probably. I know that the the guys that uh, one of the guys that was at uh, that did her Gluster talk was there and videotaped it and put it up on YouTube. So we'll probably uh, he'll probably be there to videotape it and upload it. So yeah, cool, right on. Um, oh, Dave, do, have you do you use TurboTax? Do your taxes? 
No, I don't. I we have an accountant, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's it's one of those things that it's like it. I don't know. Do you? I did. I did for a while, um, and then I finally decided I was like, you know, had to be a grown up about taxes, and uh, eventually, like you, got an accountant. Um, but I, I was always surprised at how high quality the TurboTax experience was. Um, yeah. I mean, you think about. <clears throat> You know, they have to account for almost every contingency on the federal taxes and then multiply that by like 50, right? Because they have to do mm-hmm. all the state taxes. And then in some cases also doing city taxes. Um, yep. It just, like I'm trying to imagine like their business rules system, um, just how mind-boggling it has to be. And then on top of that, like already complicated computational problem, you have to <clears throat> securely and safely store everybody's actual data, right? Because yep. uh, those are people's tax records. Um, anyway, it seemed like a business I did not want to be in. Um, and I, I can only imagine the kind of storage challenges they have. Uh, but uh, Intuit, uh, owners and operators of the uh, TurboTax service, uh, turns out, turned to uh, Red Hat Storage uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, to handle some of this stuff. And on this interview that just came out today, I think, uh, they said that uh, I think they're running 100, 150 terabytes of data on Red Hat Storage now, and wow. they plan on expanding up to a petabyte uh, within one year. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's just staggering. Um, so I, that, just amazing. Um, and really surprised. And, and one of the reasons they said that they were able to get to or plan for a petabyte is because of the economies of Red Hat Storage, right? They're moving off of these, like, expensive sands, uh, mm-hmm. and onto this kind of commodity hardware, um, kind of easily scalable, uh, kind of distributed architecture for the storage. There's a really, anyway, really interesting interview. And there's like two or three companies and they're also talking about Red Hat storage. So, well, uh, check it out in the show notes. Um, and then our good friend, MSL, Mark St. Laurent yep. is in the news as well. Um, yeah. Well, go ahead. You, you found it. You, you should talk. About yeah, it. no, no. I saw it. This is, uh, Sean Wells tweeted this, uh, but, uh, um, yeah, Mark has a uh, white paper up on Linux Journal about using an open source framework to catch the bad guy. So I'm um, very proud of Mark that that it's uh, that he has that out there. And uh, it's, it maps what he presented at the Defense In-Depth uh, workshop that we did, as well as his uh, very well-received uh, summit uh, talk. So it's uh, mm-hmm. congratulations yeah. to Mark. Very proud yeah. of him. Yeah, nice work, Mark. Now, Mark used to work for the, uh, the FBI cart. Um, so he's like a, he's a, computer forensics guy um, mm-hmm. before he came to before he came to Red Hat and so uh, hearing him talk about how open source can help uh, folks like the FBI um, you know take apart bad guys computers anyway it's so cool it's a really neat talk um, yeah. so good for him uh, let's see Dave I'm sorry for some reason I'm starting to lose my voice here but I'm gonna let you talk about this this uh, comma feed we finally got a hold of the guy who wrote it yeah maybe you should say orange <clears throat> orange orange that no it's making it worse yeah. okay <laughs> or cucumber <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah so it's uh, so the uh, open source project we like this week is comma feed uh so that is uh, uh you'll hear the interview coming up now where where we have uh, jeremy panzer from uh, belgium and uh he um is the main force behind comma feed uh that is like all the the links that you see inside of the uh show notes or uh, the feeds that I'm following within comma feed um they just had uh uh 
PC Magazine just reviewed Comafeed and gave it a four out of five star review, uh, which is pretty remarkable for, uh, you know, compared to all these other, you know, say VC, VC fender, uh, venture capital funded uh, endeavors to do uh, uh, Google Reader alternatives or, or, you know, companies with millions of dollars and lots of developers behind them. Um, this is a really impressive uh, feat to you know to be able to get such a high review on that. And uh, one of the things off when we were uh, uh, talking after the interview, um, just the same way that uh, um, you know I use Comafeed uh, to keep track of all the articles, talk about in the podcast. Uh, Jeremy actually follows uh, our our uh, RSS feed in in his uh, view of Comafeed as well. So that that was pretty. Uh, Pretty neat. So <laughs> that's great. With that, do you want to just uh, cut over to the uh, interview? Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's start the sound effects. So, Gunnar, do you want to talk about a uh, open source software project we like? Yeah, sure. Comafeed is a RSS reader uh, in the style of Google Reader. And Dave, there's actually a third guy on the show with us right now. Yes. Yeah. So uh, Jeremy Panzer. Did I pronounce that right, Jeremy? My my French is horrible. <laughs> well, you can pronounce it uh, whatever, whatever way you like. Uh, nobody um, pronounce it uh, the same way, so I, I don't welcome. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Panzer, Panzer, whatever. You want. <laughs> Great. Well, well, thanks for joining us on the show, and and uh, yeah, thanks um, for having me. So, Jeremy, uh, tell us all about Comafeed. So, how how did you? Did you just wake up one day and say, "Hey, I want to write an RSS reader," or or what? What motivated you to do well, uh, Comafeed? Google did that for me, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up one day and they said, "Okay, uh, uh, your favorite tool, uh, you know, the one you use every day, uh, we're going to shut it down." And and that was a surprise for a lot of us. Uh, and uh, so first, I, I tried to understand why. I, didn't understand. I looked uh, on the internet, and nobody understand, uh, understood what, why they did, uh, why did, uh, they decided to shut it down. And um, I looked for uh, alternatives, you know. Mm -hmm. And the ones that were available were not uh, to my satisfaction. I tried uh, tiny, tiny RSS. Yes. In, uh, built in PHP, but I didn't like the, the look and feel of it. Uh, it was really uh, iframe, uh, 90s uh, feeling. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and, uh, well, so I decided to build my own uh, as a pet project. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, to, actually, it was just to start using uh, Angular, which is a an open source library to build uh, web applications in JavaScript, and I wanted to try to build something with it, and it was just uh, the right uh, reason, the, the right pretext to start uh, building something. And that's how it started. It was just a pet project uh, of mine, uh, and uh, I was actually satisfied with the results. I shared it with some friends, and they liked it also. And it, decided to buy a domain and uh, make it available for everyone. Nice. Nice. And and the, to me the interesting thing that is different from say like tiny tiny uh, RS, uh, RSS or tiny tiny reader uh -huh. is that you have a hosted variant too. So instead of just taking a binary yeah. or putting the source up on on GitHub, um, you have a hosted variant. So how has you know what was the motivation for that and um, have, has it caused you to write better code as a result, or has, has it changed in anything in the way you do things? 
it changed a lot. Uh, when you build an application for uh, several users, it's really easy to uh, make mistakes and don't realize it. Mm -hmm. So you can build your database uh, one way and not realize that it's not optimal uh, because you don't have enough rows to realize uh, your joins are not uh, behaving the way uh, they were supposed to. So mm -hmm. first, um, it was really fast, no problem, because I had like 10 users or 20 users and uh, 100 feeds or something like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, when it started to gain uh, momentum, that's when the, the things uh, became really hard to, uh, to scale. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, and it, it's interesting because I see you too. Like you would also, um, I follow you on on Twitter. The uh -huh. you know the comma feed RSS, and it's yeah. you know every once in a while, it's not only you're adding features, but it's things like scalability and performance yeah, enhancements. Yeah, it's and, not something that you can show to the users because it will not appear, and a lot of yeah. people are spamming me with uh, feature requests for the the web UI. But yes, it's not something I have time to do right now because there's so much work to be done on the back-end side of things. Mm -hmm. but, uh, <laughs> I try to, to make the feeds uh, refresh um, as soon as possible and have the, the list come up uh, as soon as possible. And uh, a lot of people don't understand that uh, it's a lot of work actually. Yeah. And do you, do you think that uh, are more people using the hosted service or are they um, pulling out their own copy of the code and say running it on OpenShift, which by the way it runs on OpenShift too, which is another reason why I like it. But how, how, what what is the usage breakdown? Is it is it mostly hosted or or what? Well, what, I don't what do you think? Stats of the people uh, downloading it and hosting it uh, themselves. I don't think there are a lot of them. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe fifty, something yeah. like that. I'd say, and there are uh, around. Uh, uh, 30,000 people subscribed on the hosted version, so wow, not the same, uh, the same at all. Yeah, and well, and the other part too is it um, you decided to make it open source from the get go, mm -hmm. and yeah. and was it was there any sort of motivation? It's like I'm going to do it as just just for fun, and I'm going to stick it out there as open source if somebody well, wants yeah, to take it. That, or, or what was the motivation? Really. Uh, I like the way GitHub uh, works. I like mm -hmm. that you can put your code up there and people who like the project can contribute in a really easy way. So it's really nice to have an open uh, an open source project that people are contributing to. Hmm. Yeah, and what about um, one of the things I know when we were doing, I guess a couple of things, we were doing our sound check uh, earlier this week mm -hmm. and uh, you, you, you actually said you took uh, a vacation day from work, uh, yeah. know, just worrying yeah. about the fallout of, of Google Reader and, and comma feed falling yeah. over. So, you know, it's you know, God bless you for for you know keeping that alive and and think about the um, you know keeping it uh, up up and running and all that. That's that's really admirable. Um, but has one of the things that you mentioned when we were doing the sound check is that um, it, that from a scalability standpoint, um, it sounds like that. The comma feed, it it doesn't scale linearly with the number of users that you add, right? Or I mean, let me let me rephrase that: that that your server load doesn't scale proportionally to the number of users, right? Um, yeah. So I'm 
optimizing uh, uh, the things in backends that the entries are all, uh, stored only once for all the people that are subscribing to a feed. And I just have to store the flag that says that uh, uh, you have read the entry or not. So um, it's uh, not um, uh, an issue with the scaling of the users, but more um, it's linear with the time. So I don't know if uh, it's, uh, it's clear or not, but uh, as people are uh, publishing uh, things in the feeds, then I have to fetch those, mm -hmm. and that's the um, that's how the, the the data will scale, not really with the number of users. Okay, yeah. So it's basically if another person subscribes to Slashdot, the RSS feed, it's not. It's uh, a lot more work. It's a little bit for you to maintain that particular person, but you're not pulling down yeah. a whole feed just yeah, for them exactly. because it's already done before. Yes, yes. I already have like uh, one million feeds or something like that. Wow. And that's with uh, 30,000 uh, users. So I, I don't know if there are a lot, of, a lot more feeds uh, out there. Yeah, yeah. And then also you're using MySQL for the back end, and I saw in the feeds... Mm -hmm. On, on Twitter that you're looking at using uh, Redis? Yes, but in uh, parallel, so not to replace uh, MySQL. Oh, uh, okay. So uh, how would Redis that work? Actually, a key value store, so you can store things like uh, in there and just look them up really quickly. Okay. It's like a, a cache to, um, to store things uh, temporarily. Okay. And I'm using it uh, right now to store, for example, the, the, the tree on the left. Mm -hmm. um, if you're just uh, idle on the site, it just doesn't change very often, but I still have to refresh it uh, every now and then, so mm -hmm. that when something changes, the, the tree updates. But most of the time it doesn't change, so this is in the cache, and when something changes uh, in the database, I invalidate the cache, and I reload it when I need it. So for a lot of users, the, the tree is uh, stored uh, in Redis right now. Mm. Okay. Well, what about, say, moving forward whenever I would think, like, uh, let's say you're wildly successful or more successful than you are now and, and you get, like, a good percentage of the um, Google Reader uh, yeah. the refugees uh, that are that come streaming over to, to Comafeed, do you think that MySQL um, as, the, you know, a traditional database is going to be the right way to go for the future or, or are you going to be... Well, yeah. Right now, uh, it's doing the job okay. Right now, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not entirely satisfied, but uh, I'm not a MySQL guru in terms of configurations and plugs and tweaking. So, but I, I'm not entirely satisfied with the way it handles joins over large tables, and okay. I think uh, it's an issue with a lot of uh, relational databases. Yeah. So I'm investigating uh, other uh, possibilities, but I'm not sure NoSQL solution will help me. Mm -hmm. So I, it's a lot of work actually to 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 um, investigate all of those uh, technologies, yes. and uh, it doesn't pay immediately. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because I was thinking that well, with with uh, Google, you know, you would think they would be NoSQL and, and scale out horizontally for, for massive scale and being able right. to shard and replicate and have resiliency. But but I think you're right. It, there is like, you know, to get common feed up and running with MySQL, it's, it's you know, it's up and running, keep on going, and, and you know, I guess cross that bridge when you and, come and to one it. One important 
important thing uh, I wanted to keep is the ability to host it yourself. And yes. In, by adding a lot of um, uh, applications and stacks of, uh, to, to be able to scale, um, it's harder and harder to, uh, for the, well, I'll say little man, but it's not really that. It's a common man to host it himself on his uh, little server or in OpenShift. So I, I wanted to keep that uh, possibility, and uh, every time I add something, it's really optional. For example, the the Redis cache, it's optional. It's a flag when you compile the application, um, and by default, it doesn't use it. Yeah, and so, well, that that leads me to another question. So, from an OpenShift standpoint, did you design it for you know with OpenShift in mind, or did? Um, did somebody else like say, "Hey, this is cool. I want to make a quick start for OpenShift"? Or how how did that that OpenShift uh, influence come into play? Well, I uh, already have uh, two applications on uh, OpenShift, so I was already familiar with uh, the application. And uh, from the get-go, um, it was uh, deployable on OpenShift mm -hmm. uh, because I like the uh, the idea of um, being able to deploy it on server and use the, the free uh, version of OpenShift. Uh, that was really important to me. And actually, the first version uh, was deployed on OpenShift, but uh, the, the free version was not uh, powerful enough to host it uh, yeah. for the public um, version. Yep. Yeah. OK. Yeah, and I know that, that now we have a commercial version out and that allows mm -hmm. you to have bigger gears and, and things like that. And that's, I'm sure, a, a future consideration. Um, yeah. So, what what else? Whenever you're not doing uh, uh, comma feed, what are some of the other things that, that you're looking at or working on? Uh, but right now, it takes a lot of time. So it's uh, pretty much everything I'm doing. It's about comma feed right now. <laughs> yes, I can imagine. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Uh, I like uh, rock climbing. Yeah. Uh, I like to go to the movies, to the restaurant. Um, <laughs> Something like that. Nice. Uh, um, I like to. I, actually, I like being uh, behind the keyboard and the screen. Uh. Yeah. Well, I can tell too that you're like from uh, you know interacting with you on uh, uh, GitHub. Uh, you know, you're very very responsive and and uh, uh, very reasonable and easy to get along with uh, mm -hmm. compared to uh, many other folks out in the open source community that can be very. Uh, black and white and heavy-handed and all that. So you're you're a very uh, uh, very kind and thoughtful person in that respect. Okay. So I appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> so what? And I I, I don't want to uh, keep you too late this evening. But is there anything that like a call to action or anything that you want to uh, get our listeners to to try out or or do you want them to follow you on on Twitter or what's what what's your call to action? Uh, I haven't. Thought about that, you know. I'm really a tech guy, and sometimes I don't think about marketing and stuff. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, if uh, people like uh, the product, they uh, can submit uh, pull requests on uh, GitHub and uh, uh, give suggestions. And I'm really open to uh, every ideas and suggestion out there. Uh, or if they are. Um, uh, familiar with the database configuration or scaling or every uh, experience and expertise um, in that area it would be really great. Uh, well, I, I forgot to mention about how um, PC Magazine 
you got the four out of five stars uh, from them. Uh, yeah, right. I wanted to talk about it. It's really strange. Um, they contacted me after the, the review mm -hmm. um, saying uh, by mail, okay, um, uh, as you can see, we published a review of your applica uh, application and here's the link. Okay. Um, if you're interested, you can contact me about marketing and stuff. Okay. What do you mean about that? Okay, I reply and saying, okay, uh, can you explain uh, what you're talking about and uh, what exactly? Uh, okay. They wanted to talk to I, the, I the VP of marketing in your exactly. organization. I wanted to uh, buy advertisement or something in the magazine or something like that. And actually, what they replied is that for uh, some of two thousand dollars, okay. I can use their logo and put it on the website, and usually it costs uh, eight thousand. Oh, that's a good deal. Yeah. So how many how many of those did you buy? Well, <laughs> I replied that uh, something. What did I say? Um, you're aware this is an open uh, an open source project running on donations, right? And they did. I... So. It, it's really uh, something that makes you wonder, you know, when you see a review somewhere by PC Mag or another magazine, maybe they just uh, put a high uh, note or review uh, and just expects people to buy the logo and saying, okay, this stuff is really uh, high rated. Like yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> well, at least you got free advertising out of it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you could you could have the, your uh, VP of marketing reach out to those guys. <laughs> well, great. Um, and so that is all I had, and and I wanted to thank you for uh, taking the time to visit with us, and um, I hope you have a uh, great week. Such a sweet guy, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for you know, an open source. Uh, you know, a lot of times people in the open source world. Uh, they can have very strong opinions and be very, uh, you know, my way or the highway. But he's a very approachable, uh, likable kind of guy. So yeah. um, if yeah. if you know people like what he's doing, they should uh, go over to Comma Feed and uh, send a donation his way, which which I've done myself. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And also, if you if you happen to hit the F button um, in uh, Comma Feed, um, that was my feature request that he did implement for me. So uh, thank you for that. Um, and then you hit F, and it'll bring it back from full screen. So it's like I'm just like a really happy guy. It's uh, thank you, Jeremy. That's so, right. That's great. Well, and and you know it it sounds for all the world like actually Jeremy needs a marketing team. Um, he's so like, he's so humble about it, and kind of you know when we asked him like, well you know where do people go? What's the call to action? Like you know send them to your Twitter account or send them to the website. He's like, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. I, I <laughs> he doesn't think about these things. It's yeah, just, yeah, it just comes naturally. <laughs> That's right. Um, so uh, so yeah, we can take it upon ourselves uh, to promote the great work from uh, a seriously great guy. Um, so everybody uh, go check out Comfeed um, and. Uh, and it sounds like contribute code. Uh, if you're a storage or a backend guy, uh, sounds like Jeremy uh, could uh, could use some help on the uh, on the backend there. So yeah, awesome. Um, what's really cool about that too, Dave, is um, is that Jeremy he was he did it exactly because Google was killing Reader, right? Yes. Um, and this is actually kicked off. I'm noticing kind of all over the the interwebs, uh, people are starting to especially in, you know, with the NSA news and the rest of it, people are starting to give much more serious thought to 
who is controlling their data and kind of what tools they are relying on. I know you and I talk about this endlessly, um, but I, I did want to point out uh, a friend of the show, Eric Mill, uh, who's one of the developers at Sunlight Labs, uh, developed a, a really interesting, like a, it's a three-part tutorial uh, for uh, a pretty basic user, like a pre- relatively unskilled user of the internet, um, mm-hmm. how they can go ahead and get their own domain and get their own email address at that domain. Uh, hmm. so for, for me, you know, gunner at helixon.com or you, or, you know, David at x.com or, or whatever it is. Um, and so he did it for himself, uh, and walks you through like pretty easy tutorial showing you how to do it, uh, which seems like a great first start towards, uh, you know, uh, taking control of it because your email address really is your identity online in a bunch of ways. Uh, yep. and so having control over that, uh, I think makes a lot of sense. I know for me, uh, I'm trying to deprecate the use of my Gmail address and trying to promote the, you know, the helixon.com address uh, just because it gives me freedom of movement later. Like if I decide I want to quit Gmail, I can go, you know, I can go move to a, another mail provider uh, without mm-hmm. asking everybody to go change my email address. Um, so pretty cool. And this is, this is all kind of wrapped up in a kind of a larger movement, uh, which I think started many years ago uh, with the IndieWeb, uh, the IndieWeb camp, um, and I included a link to that in the in the show notes um these indie web guys are uh, kind of bent on taking all of these really useful technologies that we have uh, uh say like you know rss uh xmpp or jabber for chat things like that and their idea is that instead of these technologies centralizing control in the companies mm-hmm. like facebook or gmail or Yahoo or whatever, uh, that these technologies should actually be enabled, should actually enable a much more distributed internet, um, Mm -hmm. so that, uh, I can host my own RSS reader as an example, um, instead of having to go to one site, Facebook to see my social networks, uh, my, I should have tools that allow me to, uh, link a bunch of different websites together to understand my social network. Um, Mm -hmm. anyway, really interesting work, um, uh, which everyone should check out. It's uh, indiewebcamp.com. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Pretty cool. Okay. Uh, what do you got? Uh, lessons got? learned. Oh, lessons learned. Um, so this is embarrassing. I was playing around with my server uh, last weekend, and uh, I was setting up backup, right? Uh, something I used to do all the, all the time, <clears throat> you know, 10 years ago when I was actually, you know, 15 years ago when I was running servers for a living. Um, and I... Uh, I'm always a little bit nervous about putting a passwordless SSH key in place uh, mm-hmm. so that I can, you know, so that I can automate, do like batch unattended backups between two servers securely. Um, and I don't know if this has always been here, but uh, it was new to me. So I'm going to say it on the show. Um, there is a directive you can put into the SSH configuration that allows a passwordless uh, or allows a root login uh, but forces a command to be run when you log in. So in other words, if I SSH into a machine as root, uh, I can't just get a shell. Uh, mm-hmm. What happens is I SSH in as root, and it will automatically run a command. And mm-hmm. that's all it's allowed to do. And then you can make that command do anything you want, like kick off a backup. Yep. Nice. Anyway, I thought, I thought that was really, really cool. I thought that was really smart. And you can have a different command based on which, uh, which SSH key you come in with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, so wow. pretty, nice. yeah. So pretty clever. Um, anyway, the, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Hopefully, hopefully, I didn't just embarrass myself. I got a bunch of sysadmins on the call, like rolling their eyes, being like, "Duh, of course, that's how you do it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, so wait, t- so tell me more about the Purdy Shuffle. 
This is, this yeah. is actually been, this has actually been sitting in the draft show notes for like a month now, and we haven't talked about it yet. So I, I, th- this is its moment to shine. Yeah, tell me more. Pretty show. We we need to get it out of the queue here. It's, it's yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The bananas turning brown. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the Purdy Shuffle. That's that, I guess that's our term of the week. And um, so there's so this goes back to um, the other couple episodes ago where where you were actually singing on the episode, and and I was telling my wife about this that oh mm-hmm. man Gunner was singing on on the podcast, and she's like you ought to play the drums on the podcast um, because I play the drums, and right. and uh, and I'm like well. I won't play the drums, but I'll talk about playing the drums. And and so, um, so that's the term of the week this week. So there's the Purdy Shuffle. So it was it was made famous by uh, a classic drummer from uh, uh, he's still around, uh, Bernard Pretty Purdy. And um, there's a I'll put a video to him talking about the Purdy Shuffle in the show notes. And the the cool thing about this video is that he teaches you it in such an entertaining way. He, you're gonna smile the whole time that you're watching it. Um, and it's like if if all my teachers were like this, I would have learned so much in school. Um, I learned a lot in school, but but it's like how you teach something and how you present something in such a uh, a memorable and entertaining way. It was just like totally fantastic. So anyhow, the Purdy Shuffle. Um, if you ever heard of uh, Led Zeppelin's "Fool in the Rain." So there was an article uh, that that turned me onto the Purdy Shuffle uh, that I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes about that where um, where I always love hearing like behind the scenes for classic albums and where they isolate you know the vocal track or the the drum track where you can actually hear everything and and um, and it was just uh, really cool. So um, inside of this article, there it. it isolates the the uh, John Bonham's drum track, uh, which is actually a modification of the Purdy Shuffle. And so um, other examples of where you'll hear the Purdy Shuffle is uh, Toto's uh, song uh, from 1982 called Rosanna, and it's probably on, uh, uh, well, it's on Toto 4, which is, I don't know, Gunnar, if that's in the tape deck of your car right now. But um, <laughs> but yeah, yes, so it's definitely definitely. If it's anywhere, it's in the tape deck. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. eight track. Yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, and then so we'll we'll put uh, another sample of that in in the the show, um, as well as uh, the um. There's also a link of the drummer who has passed away, um, uh, Jeff Porcaro, uh, about um his take on the Purdy Shuffle. Um, and then one of the last things that we'll put in there is um, uh, one of my favorite YouTube videos of all of all time. Um, it's it's called the Mother of All Funk Chords, where it winds up being this one guy that took a bunch of YouTube videos and then treated samples of them as instruments and made an entire song out of it. And one of the um, instruments in there is actually uh, 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 Bernard Pretty Purdy. Uh, playing the drums so it's i'll put that in there and you have to check it out it's it's like an awesome just unbelievable awesome uh uh video where there there's also uh spoiler alert um there's a guy with a mullet playing a theremin at about two (laughs) minutes at about uh, two minutes and 43 seconds into it so it's it's well worth it um so if you like you know seeing guys with mullets playing a theremin um this video is for you (laughs) so that's that's a pretty shuffle Awesome. Awesome. That's great. Um, all right, Dave. Uh, well, uh, you're ready to start your, uh, your 4th of July weekend? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Back to Python. All right. Back you go. Um, well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. So where, where should people go to? Uh, oh, God. Hear, right. hear I always forget that you're, you're always the one who, yeah, that's right. You're, you always have to drag me back into that. I always want to they, sign they, off. They got to then... see the mother of all funk chords. The mother of all funk chords is available at uh, dgshow.org. Uh, D as in Dave, G as in Gunner, show.org. All right. Well, cool. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Gunner. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks, everyone. And let's just pick the mother of all funk chords. Let's pick a ninth chord. Uh, <laughs>